Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Surface for business devices are designed for work anywhere. Wherever and however you or your teams work or collaborate, Surface gives your organization the freedom to work anywhere while retaining the control you need to stay secure with built-in security at every layer from chip to cloud protection from Microsoft. Visit www.aka.ms forward slash surfaceforbusiness.ca to learn more about Surface for Business devices. With colder weather on the horizon in many parts of Canada, we've heard time and time again that testing is key to stopping a second wave of the coronavirus. Yet it's clear a second wave is already well underway in many places. I'm Gabe Friedman, and on this week's Down to Business, I delved into the business of testing with my colleague Richard Warnica. He's a staff writer for the National Post, and he spent countless hours reporting on testing and what went wrong in Ontario where the daily news caseload recently edged above a thousand. To be candid, what Richard learned is a little frightening because despite a Herculean effort, we're not getting the job done, including because of ill-timed government funding shortfalls, breakdowns in the supply chain, archaic technology, and even despite record unemployment, a significant choke point when it comes to getting people into the jobs to do testing. If there's one through line that ties it all together, it may be lack of foresight. Everyone knew that once flu season started, about 50,000 to 100,000 people would be walking around Ontario with COVID-like symptoms and they would need testing. We've never been close to testing at the bottom end of that range, nor is it clear when we'll get there, or for that matter, to the other end of this economic recovery. Hey, Richard, thanks so much for joining me on Down to Business today to talk about your reporting about the pandemic. Hey, Gabe, thanks for having me. So, okay, well, listen, I'm going to ask you the first question. So here we are in the fall. You know, I think a lot of people thought we were out of the worst part of this pandemic, but six months or more of social distancing and the daily COVID numbers in Canada are at or near the worst they've ever been. And I was just wanted to ask you if we can go back to when things were good so that we can figure out what happened. If you could kind of sketch out a little bit where we were sort of in the summer. Yeah, so I'll just talk about Ontario specifically because I think the pattern is actually pretty different in different parts of the country. Like you look at Atlantic Canada and they're they're still doing pretty well and then you look out west you've got you've got some sort of different size of waves, but in Ontario where I've really focused our numbers got got really into a good place in in early summer and uh, largely thanks to to the shutdowns and physical distancing. And then we went through this kind of three-stage reopening plan that culminated at the start of August with people allowed to, to expand their social circles and restaurants open for indoor dining and bars opening up again. Into the fall, we had casinos opening up. The really important thing to, to think about with all that is less about the specific government rules, which I don't think most normal people follow specifically, but about like the larger message, which was kind of like, life is back to normal, right? Like you'd go see a bar and there'd be 
10 people, which was the limit, who clearly don't all live together, sitting tight around a table outside, enjoying themselves. And, you know, it, it felt like we had moved into a stage of normalcy, right? Right. I remember this very clearly. You, yeah, I remember <laughs> when the restaurants opened and the pictures came out. But then what happened? All of a sudden, here we are. We're, we're back in the thick of it. Our numbers were good. Did anyone see this coming? Yeah. I mean, like almost literally everyone who studies this saw this coming. And, and there's two different things they saw coming. One is that when we opened up largely in the summer, there was an expectation that cases would go up. Like it's, it's actually pretty simple when it comes down to it. More people who are close to each other, especially indoors, means more spread. So we, we knew that was going to raise case numbers. And then the fall came and schools came back and we knew that was going to raise case numbers. And then the third thing is that everybody basically who studies infectious disease, who studies epidemiology, knew that when cold and flu season started, when the weather got colder, you were going to have this big surge of people who had COVID-like symptoms. And that didn't mean necessarily they had COVID, but it meant that we were going to have tremendous strain on our testing system because all of a sudden you've got kids with runny noses, you've got people with sore throats, and every one of those people has to go get a test. Can you describe for me a little bit about what the what was happening inside the medical facilities to try and gear up for this coming wave? Yeah. So basically, if you go back, you know, into the spring, like even before we started opening up again, people started raising the alarm around Ontario's testing capacity, which really comes into two points, right? There's the capacity that you see as a normal person, which is you go to an assessment center, you get the nasopharyngeal swab stuck up your nose. Uh -huh. uh, and then there's the lab end, right, which is after that swab gets twisted and pulled out of your nose, it has to go somewhere and it has to get analyzed. And, and it's a really complicated molecular test that has to happen. So even back in the spring, there were people saying, when the fall comes, we're going to have this huge surge of, of people with flu-like symptoms. Schools are going to be open. We've decided to open restaurants and bars we're going to need somewhere between 50,000, the ability to perform somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 tests every day. And what happened was we never got close to that number. So when the fall hit, the first thing that happened was we had a huge surge in people wanting tests, which led to these massive lineups. And then the province moved really quickly to increase the number of assessment centers, increase the number of tests being performed, but they weren't able to ramp up the second half of that, which is processing those tests in the labs. And that's where we saw the really critical backlog happen in the fall. Right. I mean, what you describe sounds like just a really simple operations problem. I remember I took an operations class once where you had to design a sandwich store and as you look at like how long it takes to order a sandwich, then you start breaking it down into choke points, you know, waiting online. What are the longest segments? And you try to address those. You know, if it's waiting online, you just add another register. It sounds like here, it wasn't adding another register. It was adding more processing centers. Yeah. I mean, the way to think of it would be, it's almost like we added 10 more registers, but didn't add any more chefs. Okay. So we had all these people getting their orders taken, but no one to fulfill them. So... 
basically back in the spring i, I mean i want to i want to preface this by saying that that like what the, what the labs have actually done in this province and and there's a mix of three different lab systems really there's the public health ontario labs which are owned by the government and in normal times would do all this kind of testing and then there's the large hospital labs which you know if you get a blood test taken because you go to the emergency room that's where it would normally go and then there's this network of, of private labs two big companies specifically and, and all of them have have built up this ad hoc network which you know seven months ago could do about 600 of these molecular tests every day wow. and they built it up to the point where where on a good day it could do 40,000 plus in a day so Whoa. it is it is incredible on a certain level what they've done but they weren't able to get it past that 40,000 number when we needed it to be and and there's a bunch of different factors that led into that and uh, you know the one that is probably the most preventable is a lot of these places just didn't have the physical space to expand fast enough you know uh, mount sinai hospital in toronto actually had they're called analyzers which are these machines that process the tests they had more analyzers they had more staff they had supplies when the fall surge hit but they hadn't been given the money to build a new lab to put them in um huh. and that approval for that money which was asked for by a bunch of different labs in the spring didn't come until after the fall surge had hit so, so that that was one really crucial error that happened okay so yeah I, I read this in your story though that they had analyzers but they just it takes time to do a renovation and they never got the money in time to do the renovation to meet the testing need it, i think you said in that though it wasn't just about money it, it was also sort of as a society we weren't prepared for a pandemic so we didn't we didn't have the human resources either yeah no i mean it was it, it's a bunch of different factors and 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 one of it is yeah literally human resources is all these tests need to be interpreted it's not like like a pregnancy test you don't like pee on it and then you get a plus or a minus um they, they need to be interpreted by by something that's called a certified medical technologist which is like a three or four year training course uh to do and since literally the mid-1990s we haven't been training them enough there used to be 12 different schools that that trained certified medical technologists in ontario they cut it to five in the mid 1990s and and people in public health and in laboratories have been saying this was a problem for almost 30 years you know you know one guy i talked to who wow. used to be the head of public health labs in toronto told me that like every year he flagged this as an issue up until he retired in 2014 and then the pandemic hit and and what was always sort of like a chronic problem became a disaster because you're going from needing you know, from not having enough technologists for normal times to all of a sudden, you know, increasing the number of people you need exponentially. So, so what you had was people coming out of retirement. You had you had them trying to figure out, okay, what parts of this process can we can we pass over to less qualified people? How much overtime can these people actually work? And a lot of them, again, because they downgraded the number of people being trained like thirty years ago the biggest number of, the, of these people are nearing retirement age. 
so you're talking about people in their 50s and 60s who are now working, you know, 70, 80 hour weeks trying to get these things done. And wow. these labs are working 24 hours, literally 24 hours, seven days a week. Yeah. So it, it's... But I have a question about this, yeah. though. So, I mean, a lot of people say, well, if there's a need for something, then people will step up because there's a lot of people out there who need jobs. In this particular case, that didn't seem to happen, that, that there weren't people signing up to do this. And I'm wondering... I mean, you said there was a need for more of these medical professionals before the pandemic. What, was Were there jobs available for them, like full-time jobs? Yeah. So that's complicated. Part of it is like literally there aren't enough training spots to, to fill the positions we did need. The other part of it is like if you go back to the 1980s, a, a lab technologist was making about the same amount as a police officer or a nurse. And their wages have effectively kind of flatlined since then. So while you've seen police officers and nurses spike in the amount of money they make, technologists really aren't being paid to the level of education they require. In a lot of cases, you're getting people with bachelor's degrees, science degrees, who are then doing this three or four year course on top of that and coming out and, and not really getting paid the equivalent to a professional at that level. So you had some problems recruiting people, and then you also didn't have enough space to train the people who could do it. And then in terms of like the pandemic hits, people will step up. That's great. But if we started training new technologists, as soon as the coronavirus appeared in Wuhan, we still wouldn't have them ready on the job until like 2023. Right. It's such a it's it's a choke point. It's yeah. it's incredible. There was, a, but it wasn't the only issue. You also mentioned this other issue, which I thought was really interesting, which is supply chain issue. Generally, when yeah. I have conversations with people about supply chains, they're thinking of like getting masks, getting personal protective equipment. You found something different. Yeah, for sure. So a lot of the systems that are used for testing this kind of virus are manufactured by, you know, the global multinational medical companies. Like uh, the one that always gets cited is Roche, the big Swiss company. And Roche will sell you basically like a full service package of testing kits, reagents, which are the chemicals you need to extract the virus and then analyze it. And then these big analyzers, which you put the test through. And, and these are like incredible machines you can test a, a huge number of samples at once. They work super well. But the issue is they only work with Roche supplies from front end through back end. So if, as has happened, and it's not just with Roche, it's with everyone, if any part of that system breaks down, if you have a shortage in any part of that system, you just can't use the entire thing. So even though, you know, I'll give you one example, which is in March, there was a huge shortage in the reagents used to extract the DNA of the virus from the actual swab. And that meant if you couldn't get those, you're out of luck. You know, your, your incredibly expensive, incredibly productive Roche analyzer is sitting unused until you get those reagents. In the fall, we then had a shortage of the other kind of reagents, which are the ones that what happens when, when these samples go into this machine is it latches on to the virus uh, RNA and then duplicates it again and again and again every time it goes around until you have enough of this 
of this sample to be detected by the test. And you need a reagent to do that duplicating. There was a massive shortage of that reagent. And so again, you ended up having to shut down all these machines. What, what Public Health Ontario has done to try to mitigate that is they've been buying, basically since March, only open system, non-proprietary machines. And so that means basically you can build your own test and you can source supplies for every part of that chain from multiple different people, including now there's a bunch of Canadian manufacturers that, uh, that make parts of this, you know, pipettes, uh, plasticware. And, and so that is, is basically their answer to that problem. The issue is, and I feel like your audience will appreciate this, is that a lot of these, like the big corporate machines are awesome. They do a really good job. The like the non-proprietary ones, they just aren't as fast. So like you don't have as many issues with supply chain, but then the number of tests you can do with them is is considerably less. So just to be clear, so it's like you can get the incredibly efficient, you know, private Roche machines, but those only work with Roche supplies, or you can get these sort of open systems which work with anything, but they're but they're not as efficient. Like so many things about this pandemic, this seems to me, it sort of exposes these gaping vulnerabilities in our society because the market-based solutions and the sort of publicly funded solutions, it's exposing the flaws in each of them. Did you get the sense when you were reporting this that like we just need to create, like the real problem here is that we need to have the ability to craft more nuanced policy solutions? I mean, I think nuance is part of it. Foresight, I think, is a, is a really big part of it. I think that governments are really bad at putting resources into problems that aren't necessarily going to come to pass during the course of their government, right? Like, in a way, a pandemic is kind of similar to climate change, where Everybody knows it's going to happen. Everyone knows it's going to be devastating. But nobody wants to spend the money now to mitigate that problem because you don't get an announceable for that money, right? If you're a government and you can say, I'm going to go announce a new hospital. I'm going to go announce a new drug plan. I'm going to go announce something that a voter is going to see and is going to make a difference to that voter before the next election, they're always going to choose that. So the issue with government planning for a pandemic, and, and this is certainly the case in Ontario, is after SARS in 2003, there were all these massive recommendations on what to do better for next time. And for a couple of years, governments really focused on them. And then it just slowly got punted down the line, punted down the line, punted down the line, until we got to this pandemic, and we're seeing a lot of the same problems again. Like, I'll, I'll give you one example, which is, during SARS, one of the big choke points was that there was no unified digital system for communicating between the labs. So as you're trying to, you know, at, at breakneck speed, diagnose these diseases, communicate with each other, all of this is literally done, being done by, by pencil and paper, or pen and paper. Uh, and guess what? 2020 hits, the labs still don't have a unified system to talk to each other. So if you're trying to, yeah, if you get a sample taken, 
at an assessment center. They literally have to fill out all your information on paper, send that to the lab where someone at that lab literally has to enter that paper onto the lab's particular system and at the back end, write another paper form that will go back to public health. This is a, this is like, yeah, it, it's insane that we're here in 2020. And I think this is probably what, what a lot of people may not find surprising is that it's not the only thing that hasn't been digitized. It still relies on these very archaic, what we would consider today archaic systems of handwriting, even though people's lives are literally at stake. Well, I really wanted to end on a, on a positive note, but <laughs> I'll leave it to you if there's any last word that you think that there is any sort of resolution or conclusions you drew from this about lessons learned from the business of testing so far or policies or, or anything. You know, maybe I'll just end on, on sort of a note that is more business focused, which is that if if you're a business, if you're a restaurant owner, if you're a bar owner, if you're someone who's had to had their business slowed down this fall because of these new restrictions, this is why, right? It's it's because we failed to have the systems in place to contain the outbreak of the virus when it happened. And it 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 speaks to a continuing failure, I think, to really look beyond one month, two months, three months down the line. Like everybody knew this fall surge was coming and we weren't ready. And because we weren't ready, we weren't able to test fast enough, trace fast enough, keep the outbreak under control, keep those restaurants open, keep those bars open. So, you know, if you're listening to this and, and you know, you run one of the restaurants in Riverdale here, this affects you. This is the decisions to not fund a lab in Guelph are part of the reason why you can't have someone sit down for dinner at your restaurant on Friday night. Wow. Well, it's... It's incredible reporting that you've done. It's really important. And I just wanted to thank you for coming on the show to explain what you've learned to our listeners. Yeah, thanks, man. Anytime. That was Richard Warnica, a staff writer for The National Post. Thank you for listening to this episode of Down to Business. And as always, thanks to the team that made this possible, including Bryce Hall for music and production, Yadula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven and Victoria Wells for web support. Please consider sharing this episode with a friend and rating us on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next week, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.